Amen. Well, good morning. I got good news. Jesus conquered the grave and we conquered daylight savings. So that is a victory. Yes. Amen. Let's pray and we're done. Now, uh, I'm Shane Wanamaker, one of the pastors here at Fellowship. Uh, Ken, our senior pastor, as well as Michael, our discipleship pastor, are headed to Hinotega, Nicaragua. If you think I said that wrong, just assume I didn't. Uh, they are on en route to meet with pastors from that area so that they can do a Bible institute and equip them with uh, truth and theology so they can go equip their churches throughout Nicaragua with that same truth and theology. And on behalf of Ken and Michael and John Ashworth and Tommy Walker, uh, I just want to say thank you for your support of the pastors that will be showing up all week uh, to get this great teaching from them. I also want to echo what Andy said. Uh, Men's muster is a great time for men to get away from their normal routines and responsibilities to head out into the woods and experience renewal in relationships. Uh, renewal in the Lord just being fed uh, on great topics uh, of, on Scripture as well as being encouraged by those around uh, that are all trying to strive and go towards God. Uh, it's just a, a time of renewal. But also relationships. You will probably meet multiple men that you have never met before. They may go to a different service. They may be new. They may be here for a long time, and you just have never met them. So you will meet some people, and that just fosters community here at Fellowship as you walk down that long atrium and you start seeing faces that you know uh, that you didn't know. Uh, this morning, well, first of all, let me uh, say welcome to this group over here. We have a superstar uh, in the house today, Adley Overstreet, uh, who will be getting baptized, and her friends and family have joined us this morning. So welcome to all of you. We are so excited of what God is doing in Adley's life and her profession of faith in the context of community so that we can come around her and help her grow up in the Lord. Uh, a month ago, Super Bowl Sunday, I know you guys are thinking, I remember that day well because that's the last time Shane taught and was on discipleship. And I think there was some kind of sporting event afterwards. Uh, you're right. Uh, we are actually going to connect with a month ago this morning and finish up uh, what I've dubbed the Master Course of Discipleship. And what I see as, as we look at the scriptures is Jesus, our master teacher uh, and master discipler, spent time uh, in an intensive, immersive course of discipleship with his followers. He lived life with them. He taught uh, them all kinds of things that were going to be relevant then and for uh, years to come. He showed them how to love other people, how to minister, how to stand firm in the truth that he was teaching. And among the Gospels, there are seven specific traits that Jesus points out as mark you as a disciple or not a disciple. And a month ago, we spent uh, uh, time looking at the first four. And today we're going to finish up with the other three. This is all, uh, I, I'm taking this guy for a class at Dallas Theological. I uh, have him for the Gospels. And he, he's the one that pointed this out. It's actually one of our projects we have to do. Well, he also wrote a book that explains these seven uh, characteristics, these traits that mark a disciple. And 
I mean, we have spent a lot of time in the Old Testament, so I felt like it was time to jump up and really talk about what our mission is of making disciples here at Fellowship, equipping and releasing, reproducing disciples of Jesus Christ. Um, And so if you missed a month ago, that's okay. If you have no recollection of the message, but you know who won the Super Bowl, that's okay because we'll do some refreshing uh, and move forward, and I I think we can all take some things away uh, from this. Uh, So first of all, I want to recap what the original four were. Okay, four traits that Jesus explicitly says marks you as a disciple. The first one is disciples have a supreme love for Jesus. This comes out of Luke chapter 14, where he says, if, you, if one would come after me, he must hate his father, mother, sister, brother, wife, children, even his own life, Uncle Ed, all of them. And, and this is a, a literary device they used back then, using hate to show priorities. And so what he's really saying is, I reign supreme. There is no allegiance, any relationship that should be greater than your allegiance in relationship to me. The second one is, disciples disavow their autonomy to Jesus. Uh, this is repeated multiple times in the gospel, that a, a disciple of Jesus must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. No longer is it about him and his own direction or her and her own direction. Disciples disavow their autonomy and they follow Jesus. They bear their cross. They understand that this life, Jesus hasn't put us here for our comfort and safety. But as a disciple following Jesus closely and living by his word, we are going to face opposition like he did. And the readers of that time, as Jesus was saying these words, understood what cross meant, because they were in the midst of the Romans who had perfected the torturous death of crucifixion. And finally, disciples patterned their lives after Christ, the follow me. And how many times Jesus said, follow me, and people dropped everything to do that, giving up their livelihood, their future business, whatever it was, knowing that he was worth it. So this morning, we're going to pick up with number five. Um, and number five that we're talking about, to me, if I was ranking them, and secretly I do that, I don't know if that's okay, uh, I'll, I'll ask Ken, uh, I would rank this number two. First is supreme allegiance to Jesus Christ, period. Number two would be about his word, because in his word is where we see the truth and the teachings and who Jesus is on a greater level, and we can dive deep and get to know him more and align ourselves more to him through his word. So turn over to John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, Jesus has been uh, talking with a hostile Jewish audience, and he has made one of his I am statements. He has declared, I am the light of the world. And by declaring that, it it spurs up some opposition, some discussion about the validity of his testimony. And he goes through and he talks to them and back and forth. But these, the Jewish leaders, the the Jewish uh, people around him were just having all kinds of difficulty with what he was saying and not understanding how he was trying to validate his testimony by talking about the Father. So we pick up in John chapter 8, starting in verse 27. 
They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many of them put their faith in him. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my, my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The fifth characteristic is holding fast to the teachings of Christ. And, and right off the back, I, I want to jump in and tell you what one of the New Testament scholars says, uh, hold to my te- teachings mean, because I think it paints uh, what we need to arrive at. He says, it denotes a determined resolve to live out in daily life the full scope of Jesus's teachings. A determined resolve. As we walk this earth, we have to be intentional and purposeful of knowing the word of God and his teachings, and not only knowing them with our head, but believing them with our hearts so that our feet get into action and we can walk and live it out in our lives. And Jesus is telling us that that is what, uh, what marks a disciple, someone who knows his word, who holds fast to his words. It's an ongoing. As a disciple, you are constantly learning from your master, from your teacher, And this is not something that we graduate from or retire from. This is not, you get a diploma and you can move on to something else. This is something ongoing. So I don't care if you're a young lady like Adley who's getting baptized today and then we we are going to walk with her in her journey of faith or that you are the the 99-year-old senior citizen here. This is for all of us. There, There is no opting out of this. If we want to be marked as a disciple of Christ, it's ongoing because we continue to learn. This, this really comes down to if you believe God's word is true. And I remember when I put my faith in Christ uh, at Hendricks College, I had the blessing, and I, I look back and I just think more and more what a huge uh, blessing of grace that was, that I had someone that came into my life, took me under his wing, and was patient, intentional, and and uh, imparted knowledge and wisdom into my life. Because I came with a whole bunch of questions. And I bet we spent the first year and a half going through, how can you believe the Bible's all true? Like, I, I believe in the Jesus part, and I believe some of this stuff, but, I mean, how many people wrote it down? A lot of people wrote it down. And, and they mess up. I mean, I write stuff all the time, and I misspell, and spell check yells at me, and I have to fix it, and, you know, all this other stuff. Autocorrect when I'm texting, whatever. But how can man actually write down effectively what God wanted to say? And then they translate it, and, and they copy it, and there's got to be, by the time it gets to us, how do we even know it's true? And I had such a difficult time with that. And then coming and saying, hey, here's a contradiction. Because there's a contradiction, it can't be true. And again, lovingly and patiently, he spent time teaching me and instructing me and helping me see how what I thought was a contradiction can be reconciled if you know the text, the context, and and sometimes the languages. But what sunk in the most 
was when I got away from the bumper sticker, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Because that's what I would tell other people. They're like, well, why do you think the Bible is true? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I'd walk away thinking, I really changed their life. I hadn't. In fact, I kind of shut down the conversation because they were struggling like I did. But I wasn't patient and I wasn't loving like my buddy was. Uh, Here's the two things that really helped me. The first was putting that question on its head. Because I kept saying, how can fallible man write, copy, distribute, and interpret God's word and get it to us accurately? If you turn it over, you ask the question, is God able? Is God smart enough? Is he powerful enough? If he wanted to communicate something to his created beings, could he do it? And I'm like, well, I believe he created the heavens and the earth. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe he was born of a virgin. Yes, I don't think that would be very difficult for him. And that flipped the paradigm. Instead of looking at it through man's eyes, I looked through his eyes. I'm like, it can be done. So I need to consider that. The second thing was a book I read because I had all these questions. And my buddy gave me a book called A Ready Defense by Josh McDowell. And Josh was much younger back then, as I was as well. Um, But his book has helped me communicate something to move somebody off. There's no way it can be true to, wow, there is something different about the Bible. And it is unlike any other book ever written. I have a handout at the Connection Center you can grab on this. It's really straightforward. It's just bullet points. I have two others that have lots of words and paragraphs, but this is just bullet points because these things are things we should know. Because I think instead of the bumper sticker, God said, I believe it, that sells it. These are the kinds of things that will make people go, well, I just, what? Here they are. The uniqueness of the Bible, written over a span of 1,500 years by over 40 authors on three continents in three languages, with hundreds of controversial topics, yet with one central theme, God's redemption of man. And you think through that. If we had 1,500 years of people writing, do you think it would be succinct and have one theme? If we had 40 authors in the same room, in the same culture, the same demographic, If they each wrote two paragraphs or five paragraphs or a short story and we put them all together, would there be a common theme? Absolutely not. I tried it. One of our youth retreats, I had everybody write two paragraphs and read them. And let me tell you, other than multiple boys talking about passing gas, there was nothing. No, that wasn't a joke. Uh, Multiple. Uh, But that was a common theme because the girls never talked about it. Apparently, they don't pass gas. Um, So there's something about this book that can overcome all those things and have one central message from Genesis to Revelation about this amazing God who created everything. Man messed it up, and God has been pursuing him ever since. And in the end, as the song said, he wins. I know how the ending goes. Maybe that's, if if you're on this side, and I know we have some over here because of our superstar, 
I mean, guys, this is something you have to drill down. Whether you're on the college campus or in high schools, the battle for truth is so important. And you can look at these things that they won't tell you and go, you know what? I believe there might be absolute truth to there is absolute truth. Because what they'll tell you is that it's not their truth. You ever have these conversations? Well, that's not my truth. That may be your truth, and it's completely opposite of my truth. I believe what you say is true, but what I say is true too, and these two opposite things are both true. And I'm like, that just makes no sense to a guy that has a math degree. It made zero sense. If I stepped out on a basketball court and I said, clear the court, I'm about ready to do a 360 dunk unaided right here on a 10-foot goal because my truth is I can jump like Michael Jordan. You guys know who Michael Jordan is? You guys, maybe? Okay. Uh, The reality is, the truth is, I am gravity plentiful and vertically challenged. It's not going to happen no matter what I believe because it's not true. Trait number five, disciples make Jesus' truth their truth. If you want to talk about my truth, you talk about his truth because he wants his truth to be your truth and he wants his truth to spur you to live in his truth. And there is no truth outside of his truth. And if your truth doesn't align with his truth, you need to move. So here's a question, an evaluation. Where does your truth still trump his truth in your life? Where in your life are you holding to a truth that does not align with God's truth? What are you still saying? My way is better. My truth is better than God's truth. Yes, his truth is this way and mine is completely opposite and they can't reconcile, but I want to keep my truth. We need to be constantly looking for those lies and bringing them into alignment with God's word. Next up, we go back to Luke chapter 14. So if you guys want to turn there, uh, as you can tell, I didn't put all the verses of everything we're covering uh, on the big screen, just the, the main parts. We spent most of our time in Luke 14 a month ago because multiple of these points are found in Luke chapter 14 because Jesus is doing opposite of what our culture does today. When you're watching uh, commercials and they're talking about uh, pharmaceuticals and the effects on people, they trumpet the great and the good. And it's all over the place, illustrated by the faces and the images of people happy and healthy and dancing along the beach. And at the very end, they speed the narrator up to like a six speed and they just rip through all the things that are going to happen to you possibly if you take this drug. They, they don't want you to count the cost. They want you to get enamored with the picture and just kind of miss what, what it could cost you. Jesus is opposite of that. He's like, I want you to count the cost and declare that I am worth it. I want you to see that the cost is going to be very high. But if you choose to follow me as my disciple, you will not regret it. And so in Luke chapter 14, 
That's what Jesus is doing. He's got a, a big crowd of people following him, and uh, some of them are there for the entertainment to see what he's going to do next. Some people are really trying to decide if, if he's the Messiah or not, and some are completely committed to him. But in verse 25, he says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Remember, this is the idea of, it's the literary device to show uh, priority of it. So Jesus is saying, I am the priority. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he first not sit down to consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? Odds are stacked against him, two to one. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus goes through what it's going to cost, and then he, he kind of builds through it, doesn't he? One thing at a time. Hey, you need to give up this. You need to give up this. I need to be your priority. You're going to have to give up your safety and your comfort if you're following me because persecution will come. And you're going to see here in a little bit that persecution may end up on a cross. And you need to follow me, not follow your own ways. Give up those things. The ESV says, renounce all that you have. And that is a big one, isn't it? I mean, we see uh, in the interactions with Jesus, uh, a young guy that is wealthy comes up to him and says, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, you know what? Go and sell everything and then come follow me. Sell it, give it away. Have no allegiance to it. Discard that because what you're coming for is so much greater than what you're giving up. And said that man walked away. Never says he returned. Definitely doesn't say he went and sold everything and gave it away. He did not. He counted the cost and decided the cost was too high. Here are the things in this passage and, and one from last week of giving up. Man, we give up all other allegiances. Christ is our supreme allegiance. We give up self-rule. We deny ourselves. We give up comfort. We take up our cross. We give up lesser pursuits. We follow him. Give up, give up, give up, give up. In the NIV it says, give up everything. So the question comes down to, is he worth it? You know, Jesus gave up everything for us leaving heaven, coming to earth, taking on flesh, walking in complete obedience to the Father, being falsely accused, terribly beaten, and tragically murdered, only to conquer the grave, rise again, 
and offer eternal life to you and me. And if that had not been enough, he would have done whatever was needed because Jesus wants a relationship with us. And he conquered death to accomplish it. So what would we not give up for him? David Garland, in another handout I have out there, this is so good. I I really just wanted to read the whole thing, but I thought you guys would hate that. So you go get it and read the whole thing. It's it's worth your time. Uh, Garland says about counting the cost, the choice is not between Jesus and the devil. It is far more subtle. It is between Jesus and our strongest allegiances. What holds our allegiance? What allegiance keeps us and hinders us from pursuing Christ? David Garland talks about the word renounce. This word cannot be easily softened, perhaps only ignored. There's no softening in this word. We have to come to God with our hands wide open saying, whatever you've given me, whatever I have, it's yours if you want it. Now, he may not take it all. He may allow you to continue to steward it, but it's always open-handed because you never know when he says, all right, give it to me. And at that point, our temptation is going to be no. And we're going to say whatever that is, is greater than whatever Jesus can provide. And we need to keep in this posture, open-handed, offering it all back to him. Trait number six is disciples renounce earthly pleasures for kingdom treasures. We have the mindset that what comes from the king of all kings is greater than whatever this earth has to offer. And we willingly detach ourselves, renounce it, give it up, saying he is better. And there are going to be times, and and I love this group over here, so I love all of you, but I've always loved youth and college students. There are times where you're going to be faced with those decisions. You're going to be looking down the barrel of something that is opposite of God, and you're going to say, I want that, but Jesus wants this. And those two things are going to be at odds. And you're going to have to choose, if I give that up and embrace Jesus, is it worth it? And it is. Every single time, it is. And that allows us to be detached, saying, whatever Jesus brings is better than whatever I gain. And we can move forward. So here's our application question for this. What are you afraid to lose? What is it that you have that you're like, I would give anything to God except... All of it's yours, Lord, as long as this stays mine. What do you have to lose? Is whatever you have to lose greater than whatever you have to gain in Christ? Our seventh and final trait comes out of John chapter 13. And this follows Jesus giving such... The the master's course, I mean, he shows these disciples over and over how to live as one of his disciples. What Just a great example. In John chapter 13, he is 
washing the feet of the disciples, these stinky, smelly, dusty, dirty, muddy feet. He gets down with a towel and he washes their feet. And they are like, whoa, what are you doing? We should be doing this for you. And they're right. But Jesus is showing them how to love one another. Picking up John chapter 13, verse 33. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Jesus now turns to uh, an outward response of those around you. And he says, as I have loved you, love one another. And this seems simple enough, doesn't it? But how often do we spend in conflict? How often do we mess up with those around us or those around us mess up with us and we have conflict? And it, it hinders us from wanting to show the love that we have received from Christ. Because suddenly we start talking about our rights and our feelings and how uh, what we wanted has been violated and, and now there's ickiness and I just don't feel like it. And we forget that that's not how Christ operates, is it? And I am so thankful for it. Trait number seven is disciples' love for others shows who they really love. Disciples' love for one another shows who they really love. So who are you showing? Because when I think about this, I'm like, you know, when I'm not doing well, when, when I'm not loving well, when I'm uh, not acting kind or graceful or uh, pastoral, whatever uh, adjective you want to put in there, and I get called on it, if I take one second to think it through, I know who I'm showing I love. Me. Because when I have conflict, usually it's because I'm thinking of myself more than the other person. Where Christ washes the feet of my disciples, I'm like, you can wash my feet, that's great. Thinking about myself over others. Which begs the question, who does your love for others show that you love? Is it mostly you see you receive the love of Christ and you're pouring that out to others? Or is that hindered by your love for self, by our self-focus? This one's a tough one to wrestle with because, um, yeah, I mean, this is a daily battle. A daily battle to put Christ's love in us to distribute to others instead of receiving Christ's love like the kid in the candy store just wanting more and more and more and then going, you know, I'm not sharing my candy. It's for me. I like candy. So as I put this all together, I'm like, you know, this boils down to two things. The first six traits really boil down to our love and allegiance to God. And the seventh is about loving others, right? And, and so Jesus uh, had some people that were coming to him trying to trip him up. They were playing stump the Savior. And they asked him, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? 
And Jesus answers and says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest command. Now that would have satisfied them because they asked for one. But Jesus gives them a bonus. He says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the entire law and the prophets. And what you see in these seven traits, what what I take out is, man, it's about loving God and loving others. And so much is about loving God because we drift so easily from that. But if we are aligned with loving God well in these six traits— where he is our supreme love, where we are denying ourselves, where we're taking up our cross, where we're following him, when we're holding fast to his truth, where we're renouncing, detaching ourselves from everything. When we're doing that, we will love one another. And what Jesus says, and they, the world, will know it. And this is the story of our check trip. Every year when we go, we take a band of brothers and sisters over there into an atheistic country that does not believe in God. I've been told multiple times when I said, hey, did you go to church? No, I believe in science. Like It's not even a thought for them. But throughout that week, what they see that communicates more than what they hear is a group of people with a common purpose that love and serve one another. And there were multiple times in my nine trips to the Czech Republic where someone said to me or someone said to someone else on the team, listen, I don't believe anything you guys are saying, but there is one thing I can't get past. What is it that makes you guys care about each other so much? No one does that in this country. What is it that you have that we're missing? And the answer is, it's not a what, it's a who. Because he loves us, we love one another. And when you put this great commandment with the great commission and making disciples, if we're living out being a disciple and these seven characteristic traits and then going and reproducing ourselves and others, as we're going, we are baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we are instructing to obey all of Jesus' teaching, holding fast to them ourselves. And the world will take notice as we love them. And the gospel will reach the ends of the earth. And he is with us every step of the way to the very end of the age. And God will be glorified, his kingdom expanded, And our lives will be so full of meaning. We will be joyful in everything. Yes, discipleship is costly. It could cost you everything. It could cost you everything. Is it worth it? You bet. Absolutely. Every time. So what do we do with this? A few next steps. A very practical next step might be to tangibly show the love of Christ to someone this week. Maybe in your work, neighborhood, uh, at one of the sporting events you might be at this week. Another one, hey, I need to get rekindle the fire for God's word, and so I need to put in place some habits. Uh, maybe you start and end your days this week with reading in the Gospels. Maybe a chapter in the morning and chapter at night. 
Finally, we don't want to be dead ends. We want to receive, like, like we want for the Nicaragua pastors that Ken, Michael, John, and Tommy are with. We want to teach so they can go teach. We need to receive teaching from the Lord and go take it to others. So maybe you want to share with a younger Christian this week. And if discipleship's been a topic you've been thinking about a while, tomorrow night, Downline has their second preview night, 645 upstairs in the kids' worship room. You can sign up or just tell Chris I said to show up, and he won't care. Uh, and, and go check out what Downline has. Even if you don't ever take Downline, the class will be worth it, and you will be blessed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your teaching, for your word, for your love. And God, as uh, our prayer team goes under hope and love, we just ask that if anyone in here is wrestling with any of these traits or anything else in their lives, that they could come and be prayed for, that you would meet them in that place. Father, that you would meet all of us and teach us and grow us in being your disciple. Father, would we love you well and love others. Amen.